Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched The Northman, a new Viking revenge thriller directed by Robert Eggers and co-written by Sean. Based on the medieval Scandinavian legend of Amleth, it stars Alexander Skarsgård as a warrior who vows to avenge the murder of his father, the king. So this is a very hot movie at the moment. Robert Eggers is previously known for directing The Witch and The Lighthouse, which are both very interesting independent films. And this is his first really big budget film, 70 to $90 million estimated budget. Lots of action scenes, lots of beheadings, lots of large shirtless men, all the hallmarks of a big blockbuster, but also considerably weirder than most, I think. Yes, and I had seen everywhere reported that it was a $90 million budget and was like, it's insane that they have decided, you know, the powers that be have decided to spend this much money and discovered doing research for this episode that, in fact, it was supposed to be $65 million and then COVID happened and they had to add all of the COVID protection stuff to the budget and that is why it sort of ballooned so i could imagine the studio being like 65 million dollars is you know a fair chunk of money but it'll be it'll do well in europe etc etc and then all of the sudden it's like oh now this has to do really well and it's not and it's not going to it's doing fine but you know cinema's a different place in 2022 yeah i mean it's made like 11 million dollars in the united states so far i think it probably will do really well in europe but um as you say, no one could have predicted what was to come when this was greenlit. This is a rare example of an episode where I'm going to be more positive about a thing than Gavia. Usually that is the opposite. We have the opposite dynamic. You had seen this before me and another friend had seen it as well. And you both did not like it. And I was like, grateful in a way to have someone sort of harshing the buzz because most of the critical response I'd seen was really, really positive. And I went with three other people. I hadn't been in a movie theater in like many months because of Omicron and my chronic back issues. And I really liked it a lot. I didn't think it was perfect by any stretch, but I was kind of mesmerized by it and found it really intellectually engaging in a way that I hadn't found his previous films engaging. And I found it kind of, like, sneakily deep, despite the fact that on the surface, there's a lot of, as you said, just, like, beheadings and yelling. And I think he's doing something, I just think he's doing something really interesting, and I admired his commitment to his intellectual project, which is basically, like, this is a fucking biking story, it's not a 21st century story, and, like, deal with it. Which, again, amazing that he got this much money to make this fucking weird movie. Yeah. I mean, the other way in which this is a, is a reversal in that usually I'm the more positive of the two if we are divided at all, is that this is very much a scenario where when people really like this movie, it's because of the vibes. And usually I am the person who is pro-vibe. I am a vibe-forward uh, film enjoyer. <laughs> and in this, I was just like, it's just not clicking for me. And there are many elements of this film which I either found impressive or did actually enjoy. Like, I really loved all of the strange rituals and the cast is often very great like obviously it's an impressive cast and the production design is extremely impressive which we'll be talking about at length because that is kind of Robert Eggers's famous area of expertise but I really could not get into the story and I 
felt like a lot of the stuff that a lot of other people are finding really engaging and exciting to me was more like a veneer over a very conventional kind of macho action epic which had to me some definite sexist elements which we will also go into but I mean reading up on this was really interesting because like there was a great deal of coverage for this movie there was loads of in-depth interviews with Robert Eggers who's you know a very good interviewee and all the people he worked with and also clearly they have a great publicity department who are like lining up all these cool uh, Norse mythology and history experts to talk about the film so we have extensive sources here and every time I read something I was like god this is so interesting like I love Norse history I love all this stuff it's so fascinating it's really interesting to learn about the meticulous production design and I was just like I still don't really like the movie very much so you know it's gonna be interesting to talk about even though I was not vibing with it. I did not find this movie particularly sexist. Um, I think the Anya Taylor-Joy character could probably be a bit more interesting, but I wasn't like massively bothered by that. I think Nicole Kidman is incredible in this movie. She's not in it a ton, but once she's in it, she's doing the most. One loves a Nicole. I mean, sexist is a simplification of a rather nuanced issue I have with this movie, which we will get yeah. into. But I found the way it was dealing with sort of masculinity really interesting. I think there's a critique of the worldview happening in that, like, there's just all of this murder and gruesome, horrible violence and, like, to what end, right? Like, it made me think a lot about Beowulf, which I read recently in the recent translation, which I mentioned on one of our Patreon episodes, I think, which is about this, like, great king who shows up from another place, has some sort of superficial similarities to the plot of this story and yet he kind of ends up alone and like has a lot of money but what was the point of all of it right and um in this too it's sort of empty by the end but i think part of what he's doing in the movie is saying like these people lived in a completely different moral universe than us and like that just is a fact and so i was texting with one of our sort of friends of the podcast cat who has requested stuff before about this movie and she really liked it too. And um, we were saying that like to us and to a friend of mine, I saw this way that kind of like the more we thought about it, the more interesting it seemed, although I, I liked it in the theater and what she said, I want to read this text. I thought it was really smart was the movie is a really profound enterprise in forcing the audience to accept what to us are incomprehensible moral values for two hours. And I was like, that's exactly what the movie is. The hero she was pointing out is like, literally like murdering children within the first half an hour of the movie and just like slaughtering innocent people all over the place. And yet you still have to stay with him for two hours. And the movie's not saying that he's like an evil person. It's just like, well, this is kind of the way it is. And I just really respected the sort of like commitment to that intellectual project throughout. And again, the like boldness of saying like, this is the movie that is going to be like a big mainstream play is this completely alienating situation and yet somehow we have to try to make it entertaining also i found all of that interacting together you see, really kind in of fascinating theory, i'm really into that and that is kind of what he did with the witch for those who haven't seen it it's set in puritan new england and the main characters are this extremely poor family who are living this hard scrabble rural life and the protagonist is a teenage girl who is essentially is seduced by the devil but it's kind of a it's a witchcraft witch hunt story but the point of that is that it's completely immersed both in the physical world of how they were living and also in the belief system so all the stuff they believe about witchcraft is true 
but not through a modern lens. And that's like, he's completely obsessed, uh, Robert Eggers, with just historical perspectives. Like one of the interviews I was reading with him says that he writes fluently in early modern English. He is very into this sort of extensively detailed production design and world building. And I love that. Like, I love that as a concept. I've loved it in other projects. I think this is sort of going to be a sister episode to our episode on the Green Knight, which in some ways was attempting to do a similar kind of project, but was a bit more experimental. And also we both agreed was less successful at kind of immersing itself in its own medieval source material because the source material it was working with was like far more upbeat and the film The Green Knight is just like very much not that. But with this, although I am definitely into the concept of embracing a different like morality and belief system to what the audience expects, afterwards I was just kind of left thinking this isn't actually dissimilar to a hell of a lot of other pretty much mainstream revenge thrillers, both in terms of just like fun entertainment ones like John Wick or grittier ones. And Hollywood has an endless appetite and budget funding for movies which are specifically about male violence and vengeance. And the story for like a serious one is oh, it ends tragically and you're caught in this cycle of masculine violence and revenge. And we know this is terrible, but you're trapped there, which is what this is because it's a more serious project. And other kind of more fun projects just use that as entertainment value. So like the direct comparison here would be the original Conan the Barbarian, which Robert Eggers has actually compared this to. The narrative is extremely similar. Like it's it's definitely echoes that film a great deal. But this movie takes the story of Amleth and then like gears it more toward what to me felt like a very conventional macho style of revenge thriller. And a lot of the really impressive research and stuff is just like couching a story that I was maybe not very impressed with. And when I compare it to something like You Were Never Really Here, which is of course a very different kind of movie because it's contemporary, I felt like that was just far more psychologically interesting and had a more complex protagonist because the protagonist of this in the end is to me at least not an interesting guy which is okay because you know in many revenge thrillers it is just like this guy who's running around murdering people but you know I think Morgan's ready to disagree with me again (laughs) well I think that I mean I think you were never really here is better movie than this I think that's one of the best movies that's come out in the past five years or so I don't actually remember the exact date that that came out but I think that it's kind of a feudal comparison because that movie is attempting to be psychological and this movie is not because its mindset is in these saga tales, which are not about psychology in a 20th century yes. framework, right? And also Robert Eggers as a creator is not interested in character, which is something right. I found very interesting about reading interviews with him. Right. But I think that that comes from his interest in really trying to exist in the past when, like, obviously people in the past experienced psychology because it's not like Freud popped up and was like, aha, I'm snapping my fingers and now we all have issues with our parents. But, like, the idea of the way that we think about ourselves really changed when that happened. And this is literally a thousand years earlier, right? So after the movie, I was talking to the people I went to it with and was explaining part of why I liked it so much. And the fact that the characters don't really change and that Skarsgård is 
this kind of cipher in a way, I really respected the movie for doing that because it would be really, and, and him for like, he produced this movie. He's been obsessed with Vikings since he was a kid, which I found very <laughs> charming. Um, he is a huge Weren't nerd. Weren't we all? People. Haven't we all? <laughs> yeah. Alexander Skarsgård, who I have seen in person at a play once and um, like not acting like he was in the audience and he is as enormous and muscular as you would imagine him to be. But in real life, Everyone, like all the interviews suggest and people have confirmed, is just like a huge dweeb, which I love and respect. But like he produced this movie, he'd wanted to do a Viking movie for a long time. And part of what I was thinking about after is that like, I feel like in the past five years or so, a lot of the acting he's done has not been about his own ego, or at least it hasn't seemed that way from the outside. And so obviously he's the star of this movie, but it's not like he gets a bunch of big monologues, right? Like he's kind of just there to be a body in a way and similarly other things he's done recently he's just like played a gross horrible man in service of a bigger thing and even his part on succession which i think he's really great on that show like he's not the flashy star in succession right and it just feels like he's interested in being part of a project as opposed to being like the star I mean, I think like a lot of famed hunks, he was really damaged by being typecast as a hunk. He was very uncomfortable with the fact that he was framed as like the shirtless guy. And I mean, Tarzan was 2016, which is not that long ago. (laughs) I know, it's crazy to think of. And he's 45 now. So like, (laughs) it's it's like he's he's bulking up like this, you know, I can't imagine. But um, with all the characters, you don't so much get a sense of like arcs or like what's going on in their head. It's all about this belief system that is explained pretty well in the movie, but is completely foreign to us. Yeah. And that was my favorite element of the film. I think just the philosophy and mysticism. Yeah. And I didn't find like, it is really brutally violent, but I wasn't thinking about those other kinds of films that you're describing. I was thinking about Hamlet a lot because this has the same exact plot as Hamlet. Um, It's based on the story that Hamlet is based on. But I felt like the filmmaking was so strong that when he's showing these kinds of like brutal battles and fights that he was making a point that felt effective to me. And that combined with the fact that it was so unusual and kind of a narrative structure way like it does have a bit of that sense of like you're just going from one place to the next and and then the hero just shows up in another place and another thing happens and psychologically unusual from what we're used to it did feel different to me i do think it's too long and kind of drags in certain places but it felt like it was its own thing as opposed to being derivative of other stuff even though obviously it is literally derivative of hamlet Yeah, I mean, interestingly, Hamlet seems to be closer to the original legend than this film was. Before I watched the movie, I was like, oh, go and check out, you know, the source material. So I looked up Saxo Grammaticus on Project Gutenberg and was immediately like, this is not fun to read. (laughs) It's like very sort of dense 19th century translation. So unlike The Green Knight, which is extremely fun to read, I did not bother. But the general background... (laughs) is that um, the story of Amleth, there was a bunch of different versions, like other Norse histories and legends. It's kind of an oral history situation and there's, you know, lots of hybrid versions and people were just remixing stuff as they went. But the most complete surviving version is Saxo Grammaticus, which is 13th century. 
And in the original story, instead of it being this kind of narrative about him leaving as a child and kind of becoming a berserker warrior, which is like the kind of middle section of the film here, and then returning to find his uncle and kill him in revenge, the Amleth story has him kind of pretending to be mad to hide the fact that he's doing a secret revenge plan. So actually the original story is not as action focused as the film, but what happens in the film is like the introductory section is there is a young child actor who's playing the the protagonist named Oscar Novak. I assume this is his first role, but he was very good. And he's kind of introduced as the young and just like childlike and quite sweet son of the king who is played by Ethan Hawke. And uh, Amleth's mother is played by Nicole Kidman, Queen Gudrun. And then Clay's bang plays Fjolnir the brotherless, who is is the brother or half-brother of the king. And that first section ends with like the brother killing Ethan Hawke. And Morgan, I'm going to tell you a piece of information which is going to make you laugh at me, which is that despite months in advance being aware of the full cast of this film, I watched the entirety of this movie without realising the brother was Clay's bang because <laughs> he had a beard. <laughs> and afterwards I was like, oh, it's Clay's bang. Because <laughs> I was like, wow, they've got some like unknown Scandinavian actor. It's like, no, it's fucking Clay's bang. <laughs> so... <laughs> Who is, of course, great. Like, they're all fantastic, but I couldn't recognize him with a beard. (laughs) I did a double take when he first appeared because of the beard, but within maybe 10 seconds was like, oh my God, it's Clay's bang. For those who are not, you know, bang heads like myself, he is the (laughs) lead actor of The Square by Ruben Ostlund, who directed Force Majeure. And I am perhaps the biggest fan of the film The Square. I fucking love that movie and I love Clay Bang and that movie and I don't understand why he's not like the lead of like five movies a year. He is so talented and so hot. And clearly Robert Eggers was like, I know what to do. I'm going to make him play Claudius in my Hamlet adaptation and he's going to get naked. And I was like, great. I think that that's a good plan. Congratulations to all of you. I would be interested to know, because there is a small modicum of CGI in this film, even though Robert Eggers is the finds CGI in Anathema, but I would be interested to know what, how much of that was used on Clay's Bang's body, because it's like, the man's 54, like, was he, like, fucking shredding to be in this film? <laughs> I feel like it would really go against Eggers' philosophy to do that, but also I hope that Clay's Bang wasn't like killing himself. (laughs) I mean, one of the things I really did enjoy in this film is old, ugly, naked men. (laughs) Because there were several scenes where there was just like a gross old man sort of grunting a rhythmic chant. And I was like, that's what I'm here for. (laughs) Willem Dafoe also playing a jester for like two scenes. Uh, I loved Willem Dafoe and I wish he had been in the whole movie. But you know, he's great. Yeah, I think he probably was in the movie because he likes working with Robert Eggers yeah. and was like, sure. He likes working with Robert Eggers. This is precisely the sort of role he enjoys and he loves to work. Famed workaholic, Willem Dafoe. Yes. And Ethan Hawke also, like two to three scenes, just great stuff, gets again high on some weird substance that they consume, growls see, like a dog watching that, I was like, oh, I'm sure this is the famed reindeer urine magic mushrooms but in the research materials to the film it says it's actually henbane seeds and i was like interesting 
But there is a hallucination sequence where they do a fun little ritual where they pretend to be dogs. Once again, one of my favourite elements of the movie. And then they, you know, the protagonist hallucinates his family tree and his destiny as a future king. Yeah, I enjoyed all that quite a lot. I was not in love with the CGI, but... um, Well, in fact, Morgan... What can you do? I read an article all about this where Robert Eggers did an interview basically talking about how much CGI he used in this. And during that sequence, which you're complaining is CGI... Almost none of that, Morgan, was CGI. (laughs) They did physical, chemical reactions to make all of the smoke effects. They had human people hanging up and like mannequins and stuff to be all of the weird stuff hanging off the family tree. And some elements of that was like CGI composites, but almost all of it was practical effects that they'd sort of glued together. And the bulk of the CGI in this movie was stuff where they like physically couldn't do it. So like there's a scene with like a Viking longship in a storm and the storm is digital because the only other way to safely film something like that would be with a model and he didn't want to do a model. And then also there's a there's a scene where Amleth catches a spear that's thrown at him, which is of course physically impossible. So they do like a CGI spear throw. But uh, yeah, the thing you're describing, which you think looks really CGI, is actually mostly someone doing a bunch of close-up shots of smoke and then having people hanging off ropes and stuff. (laughs) Well, I didn't think it looked good, but I respect him for his obsession. I mean, yeah, I watched that scene and I was like, I'm getting shades of American Gods, the TV show, which is, you know, not the highest of praise. (laughs) I mean, I was just watching screeners for a television show I shall not name because... This is all advanced stuff, but um, fit. It was like rushed to get the screeners out to the critics. Yeah, unfinished. And they had not finished. I often watch unfinished. Yeah, yeah, and the sheer volume of CGI in this basic realism. You know, like there's no fantasy elements of any kind in this television show, and so much CGI that obviously, you know, I'm sure it's a budget issue, whatever. But I was talking to a friend about this yesterday and she was like, wouldn't it be cheaper to just like do, you know, insert practical effect here correctly the first time? And I was like, you would think it would actually be more efficient to do that. Or just shoot more scenes in rooms. Right. Correct. So yeah, I think that Edgar's being like, God damn it. No, it's all going to be real. I, I really, I applaud that. But anyway, what shall we discuss next? There's plot stuff. There's production stuff. There's there's a lot to talk about. So I think we should talk about production stuff because I feel like we've already touched upon this several times. I have an extensive quote here from Robert Eggers, uh, which is like actually just from like the promo materials from the film, where he kind of talks about the research situation here. As I mentioned, he is a former production designer. Before he made films, he did stage work, and I think he was discovered by his first major film contact when he was staging a Commedia dell'arte play on the streets of New York where he'd like done all of this sort of like very authentic reproductions of like masks and stuff and he'd written everything himself in Elizabethan English and also like this film obviously had a bunch of historical consultants who apparently fucking loved working with him because the job for historical consultants typically on a film is for them to be ignored and then feel extremely frustrated and annoyed and then complain to all of their historian friends and in this it's like you have finally a director who loves to hear the details (laughs) 
But um, this quote is, With the help of the brilliant Icelandic novelist and poet Sean, we would embark on making the most historically accurate and grounded Viking film of all time. We would be working with archaeologists and historians trying to recreate the minutiae of the physical world while also attempting to capture without judgment the inner world of the Viking mind, their beliefs, mythology and ritual life. That would mean the supernatural would be as realistic as the ordinary in this film, for so it was for them. Recent television, film and video game representations of Viking mythology and Old Norse culture are romanticised to make it look flashy and cool. The public perception of a Viking today looks more like a science fiction rock star than an Old Norse priestess, farmer, warrior or queen. With our fanatical research, we would attempt to redefine this image with something as grounded and elemental as the landscapes that were so inspiring. I have some disagreements with that, but before we go into that, let's just discuss all the production design, which is very impressive. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this goes back to his, like, obsession with history, right? I mean, this is how he transmits stories. It all looks very real. (laughs) I think you read more about the specifics of this. I did read the big New Yorker profile with him, and there was an interview in the New York Times as well. And, like, in the New Yorker profile, the profile writer is, like, watching him do editing of stuff and then like on calls with people to like make sure they have all the details right and he is just obsessively every single tiny detail calling someone up and being like well would it be this or would it be that the one that i remember is him calling up someone being like was there a taboo on menstrual blood at this time and the (laughs) historian's like i literally never thought of that before probably not i guess like i don't (laughs) very thorough yeah So he works with the same editor, Louise Ford, and cinematographer Jaron Blaschke on all of his work so far. And they are kind of featured prominently in this very interesting New Yorker profile, which makes it clear that he's a control freak, but not in a way that makes it sound like he's unpleasant. You just have to have the right kind of personality to tolerate his personality, which is, as we said, the kind of person who is calling up historians at all hours of the day to be like, what kind of fabric should we be using? The answer being reindeer leather and... uh, nettle cloth in some of the costumes. Alexander Skarsgård was wearing the same pair of shoes, which were repaired by the on-set shoe guy throughout the entire shoot. There's this one highly publicised action sequence halfway through where all of the berserker warriors raid this village very violently. And it's all kind of shot in this extraordinarily choreographed way. Basically, the way Robert Eggers works on all of his films is that he meticulously storyboards everything to an extremely unusual degree. And he generally works with like one camera and has very specific blocking for the actors. Simultaneously, like a a very inflexible way to work as a performer, but he generally gives them a lot of other control over characterization because he personally just doesn't seem to think that characterization is his job. So there's a couple of quotes here which I find interesting, one of which is about The Lighthouse and the other one is about this film. It says here from Robert Eggers, I should be an actor's director because he's a former actor, but at times I'm naughty. Alexander Skarsgård felt he was being treated like a robot for the first couple of weeks and then he understood why I was directing the way I was. And also I don't indulge a lot of table work talking about your character and how they grew up and all that. I'm more interested in doing than talking as far as acting's concerned. 
And then this quote from Willem Dafoe is, During rehearsals for The Lighthouse, Dafoe realised the goal was not to help him find his character. We really didn't rehearse the scenes, he said. What we rehearsed was that he would tell us where the camera would be. So like he had all these incredibly minute pieces of choreography, like picking up a pipe and putting it up on a different table and that sort of thing. But like he had kind of creative control over the character's emotional inner life. And I think this was extremely formative for Anya Taylor-Joy as an actress because she was cast in The Witch when she was 17 and obviously this was a huge breakout role for her because this was a tiny low budget movie that became a massive hit and that's kind of why we now have Anya Taylor-Joy and that kind of shaped her because she is extremely kind of aware of the camera as an actress yeah just like a formative element of her career but with this project obviously the previous two films he did The Witch and The Lighthouse are basically just like set in rooms it's people kind of having conversations in very restricted spaces they have very small casts and they are low budget whereas this is like a massive sort of you know it's been compared to gladiator and conan the barbarian there's loads of extras there's loads of kind of massive aerial shots and stuff like that so what robert eggers and his cinematographer jaron blaschke did was just kind of transpose their previous strategy to this which is obsessively detailed single camera journey through an extremely choreographed scenario which seems like it kind of drove some people mad during the sequence of making this big action scene because you've got like dozens of horses and like people having choreographed fights in the background you know and obviously this is something that's done in a lot of blockbuster movies but it's done badly in a lot of blockbuster movies and here it's like you've got someone who is far more kind of artistically on point and invested in all elements of that situation and like it is a very effective action scene but as I was watching it like I wasn't really thinking about those elements like there are other action scenes which may have been less impressively choreographed I definitely engaged with more you know it just as I said I wasn't vibing with it but here there's like a quote from Alexander Skarsgård where he says to do that in a scene with 10 actors 20 stunt guys 300 extras horses and fire it drives you crazy At the end of a four-minute take, Skarsgård would be on his knees. And then it turns out that two minutes into the shot, there was a horse deep in the background that was facing the wrong way, he said. And then you have to do it again. And then they end up doing it 25 times. (laughs) Which sounds like a nightmare. (laughs) Especially if you're literally naked for the whole film. Like, Alexander Skarsgård spends half of this movie in a leather miniskirt thing covered in fake mud. (laughs) Maybe it was real mud. We don't know. Yeah, possibly authentic real mud. (laughs) Yeah. Though, I mean, he speaks incredibly, like, reverently about him in that profile, which is interesting. Because he clearly did, those first few weeks that Eggers mentions, was clearly very frustrated and then kind of figured it out and then had this, like, transcendent experience. Whereas I think Robert Pattinson was kind of just maddened the entire time they were doing The Lighthouse. Yeah. Though... You can never quite tell how seriously to take anything that Robert Benson says. But notably, he is not quoted in that profile in The New Yorker. So who knows? But yeah, in one of the interviews, he says, Egger says that like they started adding more of those long takes than they'd even planned because he kind of got addicted to it. I think addicted is literally the word that he used, which I'm sure was made life even harder for everybody else. But they do really work in the movie. I think it's not something you're necessarily paying attention to as you watch, as you said. Like, I don't think I realized that scene that Skarsgård is describing in that quote was a oneer until I read that profile. <laughs> but I think you get caught up in it because it's propulsive and there are no cuts. I mean, were there any other specific elements of 
the production design or the cinematography that you wanted to talk about before we got into other aspects? I mean, we should probably talk about the cast in a second, but I think in the same vein, the music of this movie, I loved. I, incredible. Great music. Just completely incredible. <laughs> and I was actually surprised there's not been more interviews with these guys, because like this movie, you know, they've really pushed the boat out in publicizing this. There's like profiles up the wazoo for everyone involved, but... um there's only kind of like very brief interviews with the composers who are Robin Carolan and Sebastian Gainsborough, not particularly famous people. This is their first film score. They're not regular collaborators, I don't think, but they're both like electronic artists who were brought together by a, a mutual person who was involved in the film. And uh, this movie, loads of fun instruments. And as people who listened to our episode on the Green Knight know, I love a traditional instrument. I love an esoteric instrument. And in this, they used the tagelharpa, the langspill, which is a kind of Scandinavian zither, uh, the sackpipa, which are all like really authentic, more than 500-year-old instruments. And also drums, where there is a lot of debate over whether drums were actually part of Viking music culture. But you have to have them on a movie like this, because when there's like all this drum thumping, it's like, we have to have that for the action scenes. That's really historical, which is kind of a fun detail that it's like, maybe drums were not remotely relevant here. I love the Taggle Harpa. You get that a lot on probably a lot of video game soundtracks, actually, probably on like The Witcher, because it just sounds really old. As you can tell from the name, it's a kind of harp. It's a bowed string instrument harp. But the strings are, instead of being made from wire or catgut, they're made from horsehair, like a horsehair strand that's kind of twisted up. And Taggle Harpa means like tail harp, because it's the horse tail. And it sounds really like fuzzy and crunchy which is a really kind of classic medieval sound so like for a movie like this they were very resistant toward using a modern symphony orchestra which is like the classic thing you have for most movie soundtracks but in the end they did use a full symphony orchestra and what they used it for was to make a fake much bigger version of bull roarer noises which is like that big tube that you like wave around your head it goes like but they used the orchestra to make that noise to really add that intimidating depth to the battle scenes, which I find uh, hilarious. And also they worked with a Danish musicologist to recreate kind of plausible historical vocals. There are several scenes where people are singing music live on screen, which once again, love it. Love to see that in a historical film. There's one scene where a woman is singing in particular that is like very haunting. And it's the thing that my friend I went to see it with like texted me the next day. It was like, I just can't stop thinking about this. And I was like, there's so much murder. I don't even know what you're talking about. And then she <laughs> added the detail of the singing and I was like, oh yes. Yeah, yeah. I, it's I, the I, scene I, where I like it. a yeah. normal looking woman with a normal voice is singing, which is revolutionary, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also like, I don't have the level of technical knowledge you do about the music, obviously, but I was mesmerized by it the entire time. And there is plenty of dialogue in the movie, but it's not, a, you know, yeah. It's not a movie where people are talking all the time, and so that helps carry it yeah. a lot. I should I add, think. actually, we've not really mentioned much about the actual script, but there was definitely like quite a few lines, especially in the second half, that to me felt a bit clunky and kind of exposition-esque. But there was also a lot of really poetic dialogue that was very clearly written in a way that was meant to echo the source material and the rhythm of the way people speak in these stories 
which absolutely makes sense because it's co-written by an Icelandic poet and lyricist. <laughs> yeah, I really loved the script. I agree there were like a few moments where either something was just like a bit, I think it was less to me noticing exposition and more like there were a couple moments where I thought something was a bit too on the nose, but I overall was really taken with it because it's just so unusual. Like you just yeah. don't normally yeah. hear stuff like that. Which Eggers clearly loves to do some unusual vocal styles which i greatly appreciate loved that yeah. in the lighthouse i don't like the witch which neither does robert eggers apparently although he didn't explain why in the interview where he was just like i hate that movie and i was like okay um <laughs> interesting but the dialogue in that is all taken directly from primary documents from like the pilgrims you know in massachusetts in the 1600s which like of course that's what that man did like the <laughs> Classic situation. Honestly, a for... truly great miracle that that movie made tens of millions of dollars on its tiny budget. Like, fucking congrats on his Puritan yeah. dialogue. I'm from Massachusetts. Obviously, I was not alive in the 1600s, but you learn about that stuff extensively in school as a child in Massachusetts. And um, I remember feeling very alienated from it because it felt so obsessed with the historical stuff that it was dead to me. I was like, well, yeah, you can take random lines of stuff from things people wrote in the past, but like, that's not the same as actually writing a screenplay, right? And it felt so sort of like, obsessively kind of almost like cloistered from the creative process, even though obviously it is cre a creative to make a movie. And this felt more a little looser to me even though what we've described is obviously like totally obsessive and fanatical about the historical detail like being able to liberate yourself just enough to be like well we will write a screenplay <laughs> and like it will be allowed to you know have dialogue in it that we've made up he still clearly has that obsession with how people thought and experienced life in a different time but it's not to the degree that like he's so cut off from anything that he's adding, right? I think The Lighthouse is obviously way more interesting than The Witch also, although I find that movie a bit thematically thin, whereas this one made me think a lot more, which I think is why I like it better, although The Lighthouse is definitely more fun. <laughs> so when I was writing my review of this, or before I even wrote my review of this, my initial very simplified, shallow, and somewhat facetious, but somewhat truthful tweet about this was basically like, love all the parts about this movie that are just a fun, weird ritual, not so keen on the fact that it's like you're distractingly aware, or at least I was distractingly aware that like loads of women are just being like raped in the background of this film, which once again, absolutely does feel authentic to the fact that it's a bunch of berserker warriors who are going around killing children and murdering everyone and stealing everything. And I don't feel like the film was being gratuitous or misogynist or sort of reveling in violence against women. In fact, they kind of didn't include that visually on screen in the way that they included all the beheadings and so forth. But kind of tying in with what I was saying toward the beginning of the podcast in the way that Hollywood has this endless appetite for masculine grittiness. I think while simultaneously he is so obsessed with all this meticulous historical detail, to me the whole tone of this movie was so was so in line with and also colored by current trends to do with masculine grittiness. And also basically the opposite of what he was saying, where he was like, recent TV and movies are just like obsessed with making romanticized versions of Viking mythology and having all these like rock star badasses. And I watched this film and I was just like, 
basically a lot of what you're saying is almost indistinguishable from like a TV show like Vikings, the TV show, except you just have much more authentic production design. Because you have this situation where you've got like Alexander Skarsgård, who has the most gym body of all time, like 3% body fat, like every individual one of his little muscles is carefully honed by diet and training regimens. And then you have him filthy and disgusting. All of the men are filthy and disgusting, which Actually, there's like loads of famously loads of sources to do with like Norse warrior invaders is that like the men were unusually clean for the standards of Northern Europe at the time. And there's all these stories about like, oh yeah, they had like clean, beautiful hair that was always really well combed. And that's why they were always seducing our women because like they were so much cleaner than the other men in Europe, you know. And actually what cinema loves to do is create modern views of historical gender roles, which in this case, it's to do with like hyper-violent and dirty, really muscular men. And then the female characters are, obviously you have like Bjork, who has like a fun and very Bjorkish role as a mystic sort of seer type, who is only in it very briefly. And then the other two roles for women are Nicole Kidman as the mother, and then Anya Taylor-Joy as the love interest, who we've not really discussed yet, but she is a Russian sorceress who is enslaved at the same time as Amleth is enslaved, which he does on purpose to go undercover in the village that is now run by his uh, uncle, the murderer. And these two women, I mean, obviously both actresses do a great job. I think Nicole Kidman's role is just more interesting. It's just a very fun role and she loves a fun role. But both of them are very beautiful and very kind of conforming to modern beauty standards. I mean, obviously the actresses are, but also the way they're styled. And with Anya Taylor-Joy in particular, she's very idealized. And you can say, yeah, that's the perspective of this story as a myth, where you're from the perspective of Amleth or the narrator, who is presumably male, you're going to describe this woman as being really perfect and all that kind of stuff. But to me, it just felt like a very repetitive Hollywood thing where in history, all of the women have access to tweezers and a hair conditioner and don't really get dirty. And then the men don't. And also both of these women are implicitly subject to sexual violence, except Anya Taylor-Joy's character Olga manages to escape the rape that a lot of other women are getting because she is much smarter and more impressive. And I was just like, oh, great. And I also just generally just didn't think that Olga was a very well-developed character. I felt like the way she was introduced was very tell-don't-show almost, because like they're like, oh, she's this really impressive witch, and she says, I can break the minds of these men. And then you don't really see very much of that. You see him executing what is presumably one of her plans, but instead of it seeming like a real partnership where they're both bringing loads. It seemed like, yes, she's a strategist, but we don't really see what she's doing. And then they really suddenly fall in love as you have to in this kind of fairy tale. But I was not impressed by the amount of thought and work that went into that character, which is almost always what happens in films of this type, where there's just like an underdeveloped female lead who is the love interest. Yeah, I think she's definitely the weakest part of the movie. I've never been particularly enamored of Anya Taylor-Joy as an actress. I think she's fine, but I've never really gotten it. I think she's quite good in this, which I think helps a lot in terms of that character feeling not like a total just like piece of paper (laughs) and feeling a bit more substantial. But I completely agree that it's more on the actor and less on anything that the script is doing to make her seem like 
she has any personality. I mean, like, it's, you know, I think that's definitely the weakest part of the movie. I think that everything the movie is doing about women, though, is helped hugely by the Nicole Kidman situation, who I think is the best part of the film. I mean, this will just get into spoilers, but like, if you know Hamlet, you probably have an idea of where her character is going, because it's the same as Hamlet, or what's implied in Hamlet, which basically is that like, this boy sees his father get murdered by his uncle, and it's like, obviously incredibly traumatic. And then he sees his mother get sort of carried off, and he escapes, and spends his entire life monomaniacally being like, I have to get back, I'm gonna kill my uncle, I'm gonna save my mother, and avenge my father. And um, he shows up sort of in disguise, or not in disguise, but like as a you know, slave and no one knows it's him at their little farm in Iceland. And his mom seems like she's fine, actually. Like she's, you know, with his uncle and they have a kid who she dotes upon. And also, of course, the uncle also doesn't seem that bad, which is sort of the whole, the whole point of the morality of this is that like, yes, Amleth is the protagonist, but also the uncle who is technically a usurper and a murderer. It's like, well... He doesn't materially seem much worse than the guy he murdered. Right. I mean, he doesn't seem great, but it's like, he's just kind of another one yeah. of these dudes, right? And it's like, like, he doesn't seem as bad as Amleth, who is just a serial killer. <laughs> right. And um, so eventually he sort of shows himself to his mother. And there have already been like, he's been killing people in the night and whatever. And she completely freaks out. And... <laughs> is like why are you here and he's like i'm gonna save you and she's like i don't really think that's a good idea and says that it was actually all her plot for the uncle to kill his father and that she also wanted him to get murdered in this whole plan and that she hated his father that he was weak and useless and that she, I mean, she was had been sleeping with the uncle beforehand, and that she had actually been a slave who had been captured from somewhere else, etc., etc., etc. And it is just like, you know, Nicole Kidman has a few moments earlier in the movie, but she's really not in it very much. Or like, you see her from afar because Amleth is sort of like observing her, but you don't get anything close up with her. And then she has this one massive scene where all of his expectations and sort of images of her in which he gets to be the savior man who like swoops in and sort of takes everything into his own hands it's completely upended and I love Nicole Kidman she's one of my favorite actresses of all time and I think she's done a lot of stuff recently that hasn't been so interesting and I just was mesmerized by her in this I thought she was incredible and the entire audience I saw it with was like shrieking and was just like (laughs) oh my god when this happened which is like a very fun thing in a theater but to me that did a lot of work in terms of if not making the film's depiction of women ideal or like great said to me that like there was obviously an awareness in terms of like how it's depicting men right that the sort of myopic view of like this guy's goal in life which is like well I'm gonna save my mom it's like well yeah you don't really know what you're doing man like this whole thing yeah and I mean he's completely non-functional as well because it's like well obviously I mean the film even acknowledges it's like after you're done with this like what are you gonna do like it's not like you're actually capable of ruling a kingdom and I think what I said in my review is that he basically has two settings, which are violent rage and just like neutral, just like coasting, basically. Yeah. I didn't find the sort of like background rape stuff too 
I had seen that tweet from you, and so I was expecting this to be, like, rape central, and it really is not, and I wasn't bothered by that. I wasn't offended. I was, like, distracted, if you see what I mean. Because I wasn't immersed in the film, and I also wasn't emotionally engaged in the protagonist, which you can't really be because it's not that type of protagonist, my brain and my heart were seeking other people to engage with. So I was engaging with like women in the background and that meant that I was sympathizing more with them and that I was focusing more on what it was like to be living in the world. So I'd like, I'd like immerse myself in the wrong part of this world that he's created and therefore was unable to focus on like the part he wanted me to be focusing on. Yeah. I mean, I could see how that would happen. I think that's more like... That's more a me problem is what you're saying. The rest of the movie not working for you, right? Which is like fine, but... I found it, like, clearly there's an acknowledgement that that's happening, but he's not lingering on it too much, I think is probably the right yeah, approach, yeah. because I you, mean, you, don't you have need to acknowledge to. it. But for me, like, the scene that kind of unlocked the movie was, there's this part where Clay Spang's older son, so, like, from a previous relationship not with Nicole Kidman, comes over to all of the slaves and is like, can you fight? And you think they're going to get taken off to some battle somewhere. And instead, it's like, uh athletic event yeah it's like they're playing like shinty or something (laughs) yeah and they're all going at it with the intensity of like this is i mean it is a life and death situation but like as though this is they're you know conquering some foreign land or whatever and this movie is pretty humorless there are a few moments where people were laughing and i was like i'm not sure whether robert eggers needs for any of this to be funny but like there are a couple funny moments but this is the moment where everyone in my theater was laughing and I think it is meant to be absurd because you have these huge men who are like running around with sticks trying to hit a ball and performing for the like higher cast people but like really beating each other up in a way that just felt so unbelievably stupid to me right it was like what the fuck is the point of any of the like (laughs) just completely nonsense and that was the moment where I felt like I really got what the film was doing because it just felt Like, it was really asking you to look at the meaninglessness of these sort of cultural rules, right? And their younger son, the son that Clay Spang and Nicole Kidman have, is obsessed with this game and, like, runs out to participate at some point and almost dies. And they're kind of freaking out. And again, you just think, like, what the- like, why the fuck is any of this happening? Like, this is so meaningless and pointless and, like- but they, the movie just kind of moves on, right? Because, again, it's just presenting you with the way these people live. And then I felt like after that point, I was kind of watching it a little bit of a different way because it felt like that critique was implicit in everything that went forward. And by the end of the movie, like, everyone is dead. Literally everyone except Anya Taylor-Joy. And you're kind of exhausted by the time that Skarsgård is killing everyone and the movie does feel a bit too long, but the I movie, felt like The that movie is 137 minutes, and I definitely think they should have trimmed it. Yeah, I think they should have trimmed it, but I felt like the stuff that could have been trimmed was more in the middle. And, like, I was interested in everything that was happening at the end. And I feel like that sense of, like, he's finally doing it, but, like, who gives a shit is productive for the movie, right? Because you're supposed to be like, well, he's just killed a child. And I hope that was satisfying for you, right? Like, it... It all just sucks and is awful by that stage. And in conclusion, the vast majority of critics do love this movie, as does Morgan, but I am happy to provide you with the dissenting voice and the general opinion that too many historical movies are still in the gritty macho violent zone and 
as with our Green Knight episode, which was more focused on this, maybe consider adapting the elements of these stories that are more to do with humour and revelry and psychological warfare and wit rather than simply murdering. Which I realise is the purpose of this story and they're very different narratives. But Yeah, but, I was <laughs> thinking about The Green Knight a lot watching this because as people who listen to that episode will know, I did not like that movie. And I really liked this one. And I think what works about this is, again, that he's taking the historical questions really seriously and really trying to put the viewer in that world. I mean, there's a quote from the New Yorker profile where he says, as much as I am like totally in love with the verisimilitude of the tangible world, it's getting into that the mind to present it without judgment just because it is what it is. And it's fucking fascinating. The most interesting thing is like how it's still us, which I think is a great quote to sort of sum up his whole career, right? And the idea of these Icelandic sagas and like in general, this kind of saga, which is like Beowulf is like, Everything fucking sucked and people were dying and being murdered all the time. Whereas something like the Green Knight or other medieval poems, which are like 500 plus years later, which is a long time. I mean, this and Saxo Grammaticus are both essentially the same period. But the original story comes from earlier. And there's questions in the, or like descriptions in the New Yorker profile about how they were like doing all this archaeological stuff to be like, well, but the original story would have been different from the translation in these various ways because it was pre-Christianity and like blah 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 I mean again the depths that these people went to to dig up all this stuff is beyond me but um I mean I should add also that um I greatly appreciate the efforts of any historical filmmaker who tries to extract Christianity and Christian morals and narrative frameworks from your story because it is so ubiquitous in every part of western filmmaking that people don't know it's there it's like the air. So I'm like, if you if you manage to like try and divest yourself of Christian tropes, then welcome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, there was one line, I think, in the New Yorker article that was like, one of the producers or a studio person wanted a more clear car, like intertitle being like, this many years have passed. And they were like, oh, does that mean that he would be like 33? Like, you know, Jesus's age? Like, would that have meaning? And Robert Eggers was like, no, like it doesn't Not matter. to a Viking. <laughs> Uh, but um but a lot of the medieval stories like the green knight do have this sort of like humor and wit and slyness right and i think why i was so deeply annoyed with that movie is that it felt like it was not using the source text in a correct way at all and like i haven't read the source text for this but i've read other similar stuff and like it just felt appropriate to me and felt like he'd really seriously considered it even if it doesn't totally work in every way but there are so many different stories or different historical approaches that could be used that are funny and witty and like subversive in another way and colorful, right? And there can be lots of different stuff and we just aren't getting it because, you know, Hollywood's not interested. I mean, it's a miracle this movie got made at all because it's a movie that's like a blockbuster film where the hero was murdering children. Like that's yeah. <laughs> I'm bummed out that his next film doesn't seem to be happening because... Robert Eggers next was meant to be doing a Nosferatu adaptation. Uh, we recently did a Nosferatu episode on the original 1920s version, which we went very in depth with. Please listen to that. It was very fun to record. But um, I think he would have just done such an interesting take and it was meant to star Anya Taylor-Joy and Harry Styles and someone else. And like they had gone so far as to like 
scouted the places. I think it was the cinematographer, Jaron Blaschke, has now enrolled his child in school in Prague because they were going to film this all in Prague. And then Harry Styles dropped out for scheduling concerns. And I was like, that detail of having enrolled your child in school really shows how fucking annoying it is to be dicked around by a celebrity. It was like the first time I've ever been annoyed at Harry Styles when I was just like, you had a scheduling conflict and now this child has to move schools? <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Very, very aggravating. And it, Willem Dafoe was going to do it again. Like that would have been... Yeah. Uh, so... Next week, we are going to be doing another two and a half hour long revenge epic about a man. The Batman. <laughs> Yes, which is finally on HBO Max, so I'm going to watch it. Um, we're going to have to do like a movie directed by a woman the week after, because yes. this is two, two in a row. It's like a there's, um, there's a lot of business going on here. But yeah, The Batman finally, which I saw when it came out originally and uh, found interesting in some ways and a bit more pedestrian in other ways, but certainly a big step up from most of the recent DC movie output. Um, and Morgan, I guess we will find your opinion soon. Yes, I'm very curious to watch. Obviously, love, love our man, Rob Pattinson, mentioned earlier in this episode. So um, yeah, we're both big fans, curious. big fans of our Pats. Yes. So that will be next week. Thank you all for listening. As always, we really appreciate it. And if you would like to support us, you can do that at our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast we have a bunch of bonus episodes there you can also sponsor an episode if you would like us to watch a film of your choice and uh, we also greatly appreciate ratings and reviews on uh, any podcast platform of your choice a uh, five-star rating or review is particularly useful in terms of visibility and gavia where can our listeners find you and your work online you can find my work on The Daily Dot, where I do in fact have a review of this movie. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find my work at Bustle and me at Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. The Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.